In the mid-20th century, Cardiff was an important and busy port, shipping and receiving goods all over the world. The docks area of the city, along with neighbouring Butte Town, was collectively known as Tiger Bay and was home to a unique multicultural community. People from across the globe came to the city and decided to put down roots and make their home in the Welsh city. Some worked in the shipping industry, while others established businesses to make a living and serve local needs. One such person was a Jewish man by the name of Volpert, who emigrated from Russia in 1904. He had arrived in Wales fresh from experiencing first-hand the growing anti-Semitism in his country and hoped for a better life in the multicultural hub of Tiger Bay. He quickly established a thriving clothing shop in numbers 203 to 204 Butte Street. It sold much besides men's and women's clothing, everything from cigarettes to sports equipment, stationery to footwear. In 1948, Mr. Volpert passed away, and the family business was passed on to his daughter, Lily, who had already been managing the shop for decades. She continued to work hard, and the business diversified. Volpert began lending money to people, and the establishment became an unofficial pawnbroker. In 1951, 41-year-old Lily was joined by her sister, Doris, and 10-year-old niece, Ruth. Doris's husband had recently died, and so the family pulled together for support. Lily and Doris's mother, Fanny, and would also help out with the odd task around the busy shop, which employed three further members of staff. Lily, Doris, Ruth and Fanny's home was the living quarters, situated at the back of the shop. Lily had a fantastic reputation throughout Tiger Bay, as a friendly, kind, honest and generous woman. On the evening of Thursday the 6th of March, 1952, the last shop assistant left Volpert's store at 6.30pm, leaving Lily to work the last hour and a half of the day's shift on her own. She shut up shop just a couple of minutes before 8pm and was sitting down to some food with Fanny, Doris and Ruth in the back room when there was a knock on the shop door. Through the window of the shop, the figure of a man could be seen outside. Lily went to answer the door. It was not unusual for her to serve callers after the shop had been officially shut, as she never liked to let any of her customers down. However, she had become more nervous of doing this recently, and would usually only serve the person if she recognised them. A few minutes passed and ten-year-old Ruth popped her head around the door from the living quarters to the shop. She saw her aunt talking to someone at the entrance to the establishment. It was a man wearing a light-coloured rain jacket. She thought no more of it and returned to the back room. Lily remained in the shop, but no one batted an eye, as they all presumed she was serving a particularly demanding customer. Twenty minutes or so had passed when suddenly a police officer entered the back room to interrupt their meal. To their shock and horror, he informed them that Lily lay dead in the front room of the shop. Her throat had been slashed. 
The next six months witnessed a whirlwind investigation, resulting in a swift trial and guilty verdict, which culminated in an execution, the last ever seen in Wales. For all intents and purposes, justice had been served, and the community could begin to move on with their lives. Yet slowly, over the ensuing decades, like peeling back the skin of an onion, the truth began to be revealed. Witness suppression, intimidation, bribery, racism, and the uncovering of two additional suspects meant the case was far from being solved. The murder of Lily Volpert remains a tragedy, and the investigation that followed a shameful part of Welsh history. Persons Unknown is a true crime podcast dedicated to unsolved murders and disappearances. The podcast is based in Wales, UK, and covers cases from Wales, the rest of the UK, and the wider world. New episodes are released every other Monday. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Persons Unknown Podcast. For a list of sources, please see the episode notes on your app. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review and you can help others get to hear about Persons Unknown by sharing and recommending on social media. Thank you so much for listening. Now back to this week's case. The two police officers first on the scene had found Lily lying face down in the middle of the shop floor. A bloody trail led to an alcove at the back of the shop, where they found a pool of blood. Lily had been attacked and then crawled on her hands and knees around three and a half metres to where she lay. Her head was nearest the door and resting on her right arm. Her left arm was underneath her body. Blood smears were also found on the inside bolt of the main door. A murder investigation began and was led by Cardiff City Police Assistant Chief Constable W.F. Thomas, Detective Superintendent Tom Holdsworth, and Detective Inspector Harry Power. The shop premises were searched, and it was soon established that a set of desk drawers had been rifled through, and £120 in cash was said to be missing. That's the equivalent of £3,600 today. The drawer was dusted for prints, but an expert concluded that whoever had taken the money had been wearing gloves. The rest of the shop was searched for fingerprints, but none were said to be found. I'm not quite sure what that means, as there must have been many unknown fingerprints in the shop for members of the general public. I think they were specifically looking for bloody fingerprints. A collection of burnt one-pound notes was found at the scene. Other members of the household and the police could not account for this find, and they remain a mystery. A post-mortem was performed the following day, but
by Dr. W.R.L. James, who concluded that there were a total of four wounds across Lily's neck. The largest was 20 to 22 centimetres long and in places 5 centimetres deep and cut into the spinal column. The carotid artery and the jugular vein had been severed. This had been done with a considerable amount of force. It was stated that the largest cut had been made first. Dr. James concluded that death would have been almost instantaneous, although it was also said that unconsciousness could have taken as long as five minutes. Considerable bruising was found on Lily's shoulder, which was said to have likely been caused by the knee of an adult male. There was blood and tearing on the scalp, which was caused by Lily's hair being pulled. A shoebox was found underneath her body. From these facts, police surmised that Lily had been attacked from behind when she had bent down to pick up the shoebox. Using his knee, the assailant had forced her down with his weight and yanked her head back by pulling her hair. This action then left the throat exposed. The attack would have been over in seconds. Blood spatter on the walls also pointed to this scenario. There was damage to Lily's knuckles which occurred when she crawled across the floor and cuts to her fingers that were the result of Lily reaching up to protect her neck. Lily's voice box had not been damaged so she would have been able to call out. It was deemed that shock may have prevented Lily from calling out but experiments by police concluded that even if she had cried out loudly with the partition between the shop floor and the living quarters closed Shouting for help would not have been heard. There's no mention that a sexual assault of any description had been carried out. Lily was fully clothed, although she was not wearing shoes. A coroner's inquest was opened within days and adjourned straight away in order for the police to go about their work and collect evidence. The timeline for the murder is incredibly complicated and researching events 60 years on, it's difficult to piece together all the facts. This is partly because the window of opportunity for the murder was relatively short, and because there were numerous witness statements that differed on specifics. A woman left her house in Luden Square at 8pm to make her way to Butetown Community Centre. Her journey took her past Lily's shop, and she noticed that the lights were on and Lily herself was standing in the doorway. The woman stopped and had a short conversation with her. The woman arrived at the community centre at 8.08pm. Police measured the distance between Lily's shop and the community centre as only 98 paces, or 75 metres. A man in a car passed the shop and noticed the lights on and the door ajar between 817 and 8.18pm. I'm not sure how he was able to be so precise. The fact that the door was open at this time led police to believe the murderer had already fled. As I have mentioned, the police found traces of Lily's blood on the inside bolt, which they said showed the culprit had opened the door. The man who discovered the body was called William Archibald and had called at the shop to pick up cigarettes. 
On entering the shop, he waited for a couple of minutes before he noticed the body. This was 8.20pm. He did shout out for help, but heard no answer, so made his way to the police station. He was unable to run due to a leg injury, so didn't get to the station until 8.28pm. Two officers ran straight to the shop and were there by 8.30pm. The police worked on the assumption that the murder took place between 8pm and 8.20pm, but it most likely occurred between 8.05pm and 8.17pm. On the night of the murder, a description of the killer was distributed. He was said to be a Somali man, around 30 years of age, 175 centimetres tall, wearing a dark suit and coat. There was a significant Somali community in Tiger Bay, mostly consisting of merchant seamen and their families. According to true crime author Chris Phillips, this description was given by Lily's mother, Fanny, and her sister Doris, and reflects the man they briefly saw through the window when Lily left her meal to answer the door. As far as I can make out, they did not specify the man was a Somali, only that he had, quote, dark skin. When ten-year-old Ruth entered the shop a few minutes later, the man she saw was wearing a light-coloured rain jacket, not a dark suit and jacket. The police, however, focused on the description given by the two adults. This discrepancy was not known by the public at the time. Police focused their inquiries within an 800 metre radius of the shop and went door to door interviewing residents and completed ground searches looking for clues. Numerous people were brought in for questioning and an appeal was made for customers of the shop particularly those who had visited that day, to come forward. As a result of these requests for help, a local road sweeper approached them to say he had found a blood-stained shirt, jacket and waistcoat near Butte Terrace, a short walk from Lily's shop. When the man took the police to the spot, the items were no longer there, and they were never able to be traced. After a week of investigation, on Saturday the 15th of March, police said they had a man in custody in connection with the crime. Two days later he was charged in front of a magistrate with the murder of Lily Volpert. The suspect was 28-year-old Mahmoud Matan, known locally by the nickname The Shadow because of the silent way he walked around. Mahmoud Matan had been spoken to by police at 10.25pm on the night of the murder. They had gone to his lodgings in Davis Street and questioned him there. Davis Street lies opposite Cardiff Prison and is about a 20-minute walk from Butte Street and Lily's shop. Matan was wearing only his underwear and it looked like he had been in bed. A search of his room uncovered an old razor, but it was broken and Detective Loden Roberts, who led the search, was content it was not the murder weapon. Nothing suspicious was found in his rooms. Matan gave an alibi, saying he was at a cinema from 4.30pm and got back to his lodgings at 7.30 to 7.40pm. He did not go out again. The police seemed to accept this story and dismissed him as a suspect. 
However, Mahmud Matan came back on the radar within 24 hours when they were made aware of new information from several witnesses. I will explain the specifics shortly. Police did not believe he was at home when he said he was. There were rumours that shopkeepers in the area were claiming Matan had previously threatened them with a knife and he was brought in for further interrogation. This process went on for days, with Matan saying they could question him for 20 years and it would make no difference, as he knew nothing about the murder. An article in the Tribune Times in March 2022 said that during this interrogation, Matan was told he would hang for Lily's murder, whether or not he was guilty. Mahmoud Hussein Matan was born 19th of June 1923 in Hargeza, in what was then called British Somaliland. This is in the north of Somalia. He had come to the UK in 1946 as a merchant seaman. The following year he married a local Welsh woman named Laura Williams, who was originally from the Rhondda Valley. The couple met, fell in love and married in the space of three months. They had three children together in quick succession. At the time of his arrest, 28-year-old Mahmoud and 22-year-old Laura were separated. Laura and the couple's three sons lived in another house in Davis Street with her mother. Mahmoud and Laura were still on friendly terms and saw each other regularly. Mahmoud Matan had stopped going to sea in 1949 and had worked various odd jobs ever since. He had a gambling habit and was often struggling for money. He rarely made the £2 a week maintenance payments he was required to pay to his wife. He had been in trouble with police before for various petty crimes, including stealing from a local mosque. At the time of his arrest for Lily's murder, Mahmoud Matan was already in custody as he was being held on suspicion of stealing a raincoat from a clothing store, JJ Woodford Limited, on the 11th of March, when he was charged in front of the magistrate with Lily's murder. It was said he was being evicted from his lodgings and was therefore of no fixed abode. His landlord had kicked him out as soon as it was clear the police suspected Matan of involvement in Lily's murder. Matan was brought in front of the magistrate court in April and it was quickly determined that he would face trial for the murder of Lily Volpert in Swansea Assizes. Assizes were regional courts where more serious crimes would be presided over by higher court judges. He spoke very little before the magistrate except to say that he was innocent. The next couple of months saw the prosecution led by Edmund Davis QC and Defence by T.E.R. Rhys Roberts prepare their positions. The trial began in the last week of July 1952. Mahmoud Matan spoke broken English but he was denied an interpreter. He did not read or write English at all. As a result it seems Mahmoud Matan struggled to comprehend some of what went on and denied everything even evidence that was in support of his defence. A total of 41 witnesses were brought by the prosecution, but the defence relied almost exclusively 
on Matan himself. Mr. Reese Roberts said the innocence of his client would be obvious from the weakness and contradictions of the witnesses for the prosecution. Based on information gathered by police, the prosecution claimed that Matan was known to Lily and had been a customer at the shop over the last 16 months. A police officer said he saw Mahmoud Matan purchasing cigarettes in Lily's shop sometime in the autumn of 1951 and on other occasions since. Matan, for his part, denied this, saying he had only been in the shop once before and that was in 1949, three years previously. There was intimation by the prosecution that Matan had an altercation with Lily over a transaction in the shop, though not on the night of the murder. Apparently, it was over a missing shirt from a parcel of clothes he had bought from the shop. This suggested that the two did not get along and provided a potential motive. Mahmoud denied this and said the incident had never happened. Two witnesses, Mary Toley and Margaret Bush, who were said to be the last people to see Lily alive, gave evidence at trial. Both women were reportedly reluctant to come forward and only did so after someone told the pair they had seen them near the shop on that Thursday evening. They apparently feared for their own safety if they got involved. The two women called at the shop at approximately 8.05pm on the way to a social event at Mill Lane in the centre of Cardiff. Mary went in to buy a headscarf and Margaret inquired about a pair of children's shoes which she arranged to pick up the following day. The women entered the shop after the man who had knocked on the door and disturbed Lily's meal. The police suggested that the man was in the shop when Mary and Margaret came inside and waited until they had left before he killed Lily, his motive for the murder being theft. The problem for police was that both women initially said they saw no one else in the shop. After several revised statements, this changed and one of the women, Mary, put Mahmoud Matan in the shop when they were there and said she did not see him leave. Mary did not know Matan to speak to but recognised him from walking around Tiger Bay and knew his name. The two women were only in the shop for a matter of minutes. It was estimated 5 to 10 but was probably nearer 5. They then caught a trolley bus from outside the shop to Mill Lane. The journey took a little over three minutes, and a hotel clock near their destination showed they alighted the bus at 8.16pm. Margaret, on the other hand, said she had seen no one else in the shop, but said someone may have entered the premises without her noticing. In court, the prosecution were expecting Mary to identify Matan as the man she had seen in the shop, but she did not and her version of events changed yet again and said the person she had seen was tall with a moustache and wore a light-coloured Macintosh raincoat and trilby hat. Matan did not have a moustache and was not wearing a light-coloured Macintosh on the day in question. The information about Mary's previous statements did not come out at the time of trial and wouldn't do so for decades. 
witness testimony was heard concerning Amud Matan's movements on the night of the murder. Mrs Mary Gray owned a second-hand clothing shop in Bridge Street, a 15-minute walk from the middle of Butte Street. Somewhere between 8.30pm and 8.50pm, she said Mahmoud Matan came to her shop and wanted to buy clothes from her. She said he seemed excited and like he had just been running. He opened up his wallet and she noticed a large collection of notes. She estimated at least £100. Mary Gray said she remembered Matan well, as nine to ten months previously he had called at a shop to buy clothes and when she had turned down his initial low offer of payment, he had pulled a knife out to threaten her. The defence attempted to attack the testimony of Mary Gray, and said she had only come forward to receive part of a £200 reward. Mary Gray's version of events also seemed to contradict the statement given by Matan's landlord, Ernest Harrison. Landlord Ernest Harrison gave evidence saying that on the night of the murder, Mahmoud Matan returned to his lodgings between 8.30 and 9pm. This contradicted Matan's assertion that he arrived back at 7.30pm. The landlord said when Matan came in, he looked hypnotised and was uncharacteristically quiet and did not join in a conversation about two of his passions, football and horse racing, which he said was very unusual. The landlord also said the next morning, when the household began to discuss news of the murder, Matan openly accused a fellow lodger of killing Lily. The landlord mentioned in conversation with Matan that he thought it would be difficult for one man to murder Lily, as she had a large frame. Lily was 147 centimetres tall, under 5 feet, and weighed 65 kilograms. Matan replied that if it was him, he would do it like this, and proceeded to put his own arm around his neck and drew his right arm across, mimicking a slash to the throat. The landlord added that he had seen Matten shaving with an open razor the day before the murder. Matten, for his part, said that his landlord Ernest Harrison and Mary Gray were both lying. He claimed to have gone to the cinema at 4.30pm and had gotten home from there at 7.30pm. At court it was said cinema staff did remember seeing him arrive, but not leaving. He said that once he got home he did not go out again, but this contradicted evidence given by two more witnesses. A local shopkeeper said he had seen Matan in his shop buying cigarettes at 7.45pm on the night of the murder. Matan's mother-in-law said he had called at a house on Davis Street to see his wife and bring her cigarettes at approximately 8.02 to 8.03pm that night. Matan denied this and stuck to his story that he was at home, even though this would have put him far away from the location of Lily's shop at the time of the murder. It was 3.2 kilometres away. The defence did not ask Matten's wife, Laura, to come to the stand and testify to this meeting. They said her word would be of no use. Witness reports were also heard concerning Matten's movements and actions in the days following the murder. On Friday the 7th of March, the day after the murder, 
Matten was seen by several witnesses at Somerton Greyhound Track in Newport, South Wales, betting large amounts of money. The staff at the track said it was unusual for him to have this amount and it was viewed as highly suspicious in light of the money missing from the shop. Matten said he had received £2.3 shillings in public assistance payments on Thursday and had also picked up his wages that day and gone to the track with that money alone. Marion Simmons owned a property on Angelina Street, a few minutes' walk from Lily's shop, where card games and other gambling activities would take place. She said on the night of Saturday the 8th of March, that's two days after the murder, Matan was at her establishment playing cards with a group of men. One of the men, Abdul Monat, said at one point Matan was standing for about two minutes a couple of feet away from a pile of laundry that was waiting to be cleaned. The next morning, Marion Simmons said when she was sorting through the pile, she found a bone-handled razor. It was clean and in good condition. As she had no need for it, she threw it in the fire where the handle was destroyed. The razor itself she put in an ash bin. It was suggested this could well have been the murder weapon. Mahmoud Matan denied any knowledge of this event. There was little forensic evidence linking Matan to the crime, as no fingerprints were found and there were no bloodstains on his clothing. Though the prosecution did have one angle of attack in this respect. When Matan's lodgings were searched, police found a set of boots that under examination were said to be flecked with microscopic blood particles invisible to the naked eye. Matten said they were his boots, but he had bought them second-hand a few days before the murder and hadn't worn them at all until the 12th of March. The prosecution's key witness was a 32-year-old carpenter who was originally from Jamaica, Harold Cover of Adelaide Street, Butte Town. He said on Thursday the 6th of March he had been playing drafts, or checkers, at a community hall on Butte Street. He left the hall at 7.55pm and made his way up Butte Street in the direction of the police station. He was walking on the same side of the street as Lily Volpert's shop. When he passed the premises, he saw two men, one coming out of the doorway and another standing by the window. He described the man by the window as young and around 183 centimetres or six foot tall. He was wearing a light-coloured raincoat and wore a trilby hat. The man that was walking out of the shop was a little shorter at around 178 centimetres. He was wearing a brown suit with no coat and was between 30 and 40 years old. This man he identified as Mahmoud Matan. Kova had also received part of the £200 reward, although curiously his testimony went largely unchallenged. The defence closing remark was nothing more than racist claptrap and was just as damning for their client as the prosecution's attacks. It attempted to portray Mahmoud Matan as a simple fool, incapable of the intelligence needed to commit murder. Defence lawyer Mr Rhys Roberts 
called Matan, quote, a half-child of nature, a semi-civilized savage. This was misguidedly supposed to render sympathy from the jury, but actually painted Matan as a thug and inhuman monster who deserved to die. Summing up, the judge said the evidence presented had been circumstantial, but if the testimony of Harold Cover was to be believed, then the jury had little option than to find the defendant guilty. What the court didn't hear during the trial was that there were a total of four people who were in or near the shop at the time who did not identify Matan as the man they had seen. This included Fanny Volpert, Lily's mother, Lily's sister Doris, as well as a 12-year-old girl called Joyce and a woman named Esther who saw a man outside the shop around the time of the murder. At this time, it was common for witness statements not to be given to the defence, but these were also withheld from the prosecution. It's clear that police were only permitting evidence that pointed towards Mahmoud Matan. It would be decades before this information became public knowledge. The jury took just one hour 35 minutes to decide on their verdict. Mahmoud Matan was found guilty for Lily Volpert's murder. The judge placed a black cap on his head and gave the sentence as death by hanging. The execution date was given as the 3rd of September that year. Throughout the sentencing, Matan stood still, displaying no emotion. Within days of the trial, Mahmoud Matan's lawyers made it clear they were going to appeal the decision based on what they said was unreliable evidence given by the prosecution witnesses. Over the next couple of months, the case was passed to the Court of Appeal, but the appeal was dismissed on or around the 20th of August. It concluded there were no grounds for intervening with the conviction and made the decision that the defence were not permitted to call further evidence. The last hope for Mahmoud Matan was for the Home Secretary to intervene in his case and put a stop to the execution. On the 1st of September, Sir David Maxwell Fife announced that he would not be taking action as he found no reason to intervene in the matter. The execution was to go ahead. On the eve of the hanging, Mahmoud Matan was visited by a close friend, Mohamed Kalinle, and an imam. They asked him outright whether he had killed Lily Volpert. Matan replied that he had done many things in his life, but the murder he was about to hang for, he had not done. Around 8am on Wednesday the 3rd of September, a woman wearing a blue raincoat with her head covered in a scarf was seen crying outside the main door to Cardiff Prison. It was Laura Matan. No one had informed her that her husband had already been executed early that morning. Laura found out he had died by the notice proclaiming the hanging that was nailed to the main prison door. After a few moments another woman joined her and they left in the rain. A small group of people gathered outside the prison at 9am, many from the local Somali community. They read the notice and quietly left. On June the 12th, 
1954, a man named Granville George Jenkins was walking in woodlands on the outskirts of Newport, a city 25 minutes east of Cardiff. He was attacked and brutally murdered. He had been stabbed in the neck 32 times. A description was given of the killer, who was said to be a Somali man, with prominent gold teeth. He was tracked down by police, and after a chase across some farmland, was arrested. Shortly after, he was charged with murder. Police had found the culprit so quickly, because some discarded clothes were found at the scene, which had official documents with his name printed on them. The man's name was Tahir Gas who had until very recently been a resident of Butetown in Cardiff. He had left the city and was living alone in woods where the murder occurred. The police had actually come across Tahir Gas only a day or so before the murder as he was discovered asleep under a hedge. After his arrest, police found out that during his time living in Cardiff he had suffered from mental illness leading to numerous stays in Whitchurch Psychiatric Hospital. He was fascinated with birdsong and used to say it was like a radio to him. This might explain why he chose to live in the woods. He stood trial in November 1954 and was found guilty on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Gas was diagnosed with schizophrenia and was suffering delusions. He was sent to Broadmoor a high-security psychiatric hospital in Berkshire, England. Gas's stay at the facility was short-lived, and a year later he was forcibly repatriated to his country of birth, Somalia. No one is quite sure what became of him after that. At the time this happened, not a great deal of attention was paid to this news, as there was no hint of a connection with the murder of Lily Volpert. There would have been at least two people in Cardiff, and probably a handful more, who would have had a very uneasy feeling in their gut when hearing that Tahir Gas had murdered an innocent man. Nevertheless, they chose to say and do nothing. A further 15 years passed, and in 1969, a 49-year-old father was having a blazing row with his 19-year-old daughter at the house in Butetown, Cardiff. The argument was heated and was taking place in front of the man's wife, who felt unable to intervene out of fear. The man had a history of violent, angry behaviour. In 1949, or possibly 1950, he had slashed a person in an argument with a piece of broken glass. He later got into a fight with a soldier and cut the man's throat with broken glass. In 1967, he was fined £23 for causing grievous bodily harm to his daughter after he had hit her with a metal pipe. This time, the violence he inflicted on his daughter was even worse. The argument in the house continued at length. The father and daughter eventually went upstairs, leaving the woman downstairs in the kitchen. Two hours later, the daughter came downstairs saying she was packing her suitcase and leaving. The father came downstairs behind her and said he would help her pack. They returned together upstairs. A moment later, the father returned alone. 
he looked at his wife and said it was all over. The woman thought he was referring to the packing, but he said, No, she's dead. He had cut her throat with a razor. The mother acted quickly and was able to get her daughter to a hospital. Mercifully, her life was saved. In May 1969, the man was sentenced to life in prison. His name was Harold Cover, the same man who 17 years previously had given key evidence in the trial against Mahmoud Matan when he had said he had seen him coming out of the shop at the time of Lily's murder. The crime Harold Cover had just committed was so similar to the murder of Lily Volpert that journalists began to investigate the matter. What were the odds that the very man whose testimony condemned someone to death would then be found to have committed a very similar act of violence? The People newspaper ran a story highlighting Harold Cover's attack on his daughter and posed the question, had an innocent man been hanged for the murder of Lily Volpert? The newspaper was able to find the two women who had been in the shop moments before the murder. Mary Toley was unwell and had been institutionalised, but Margaret Bush, who was now married and had a different surname, now added to her story about the night Lily Volpert was murdered. Margaret signed an affidavit saying she had seen Mahmoud Matan in Bridge Street on their journey into town after they had left Lily's shop. She said she had never been asked this question at trial or she would have divulged this information. The People newspaper spoke to Laura Matan, who said that not long after the murder, before the trial had started, her brother-in-law mentioned that someone had told him Harold Cover knew who had really killed Lily. On hearing these shocking revelations, the police re-interviewed witnesses. When questioned by police, Laura's brother-in-law denied the conversation about Harold Cover had ever happened. Margaret Bush then retracted her affidavit, and having examined the claims by the People newspaper, the police decided they would not reopen the case. They said just because Cover was a violent person did not mean he had killed Lily, for which there was no firm evidence. None of Cover's bouts of violence had been connected to a theft, and they believed the motive for Lily's murder had been many. Police said that the story Margaret Bush had come up with about seeing Mahmoud Matan on Bridge Street was unreliable, questioning the money she had been paid by the paper to give her story. They also pointed to the description of the attack Matan had given to his landlord. As far as the police were concerned, the right decision had been made and there was nothing more to add. Frustratingly, for Laura and her sons, who believed there had been a miscarriage of justice, the door was firmly slammed in their face. The Home Secretary, James Callaghan, refused to intervene in the case, and any hope of an appeal was crushed. The following three decades were difficult for the family of Mahmoud Matan. The stigma of growing up with a father who was hanged for murder was a heavy burden to carry. Matan's three sons, Omar, David and Mervyn, were all bullied and all three struggled to live in the shadow 
of what had happened to their family in 1952. Laura moved to the Ely area of Cardiff, but never remarried. She did not waver in her belief of her husband's innocence, but was at a loss regarding what to do, as she did not have the financial resources to mount a campaign. It seemed insurmountable. It wasn't until 1993 that things began to move in a positive direction for the Matan family. A book came out about the Tiger Bay area, which included a chapter on the murder of Lily Volpert. The book increased awareness of Matan's story and the belief within the community that he had been innocent. It gave the family hope that perhaps there was enough public support to finally bring about justice. Initially, things moved slowly, but soon momentum began to grow. Laura's son Philip, who was a half-sibling to Omar, David and Mervyn, took a keen interest in the new developments. He had obviously heard about the story of Mahmoud Matan, but it wasn't talked about within the family, as it was just too painful. Spurred on by conversations within the community, Philip began to look more deeply into the matter, and soon a campaign was mounted for the case to be re-examined and for Mahmoud Matan's name to be officially cleared. One of the first victories for the family occurred in 1996, when Mahmoud Matan's remains were removed from his prison grave and he was able to be laid to rest in a Muslim cemetery. This was an important and significant step on the family's quest for justice. Cardiff solicitors Bernard and Linda Maid got involved and prepared a 36-page petition plus 13 supporting documents for a fresh appeal hearing. It was presented to the Home Secretary in 1996. It was then passed on to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, CCRC, a brand new body which had been established to handle appeals of this nature following several high-profile miscarriages of justice that had come to light over the previous decade. The Matan case was the first they dealt with. The CCRC investigated the case and decided in September 1997 that it should be passed on to the Court of Appeal. The date for the hearing was given as the 24th of February 1998. During preparation for the appeal, original police reports were discovered that left the verdict in no doubt and proved damning for the original investigation. The truth that Lily's mother, Fanny Volpert, and Lily's sister Doris had failed to identify Matten as the man they saw at the shop was finally made known, as well as the fact the 12-year-old girl Joyce and the woman named Esther also did not identify Matten as the man they had seen hanging around outside the shop. Most condemning were the notes of Detective Loden Roberts, who had completed many of the initial interviews with witnesses and potential suspects during the first week of the investigation. Shockingly, his notes revealed that the man Hal Cover said he saw coming out of the shop was said to have had gold teeth and was identified as Tahir Gas. This is the same man that two years later murdered Granville Jenkins near Newport. Gas was actually the first person police spoke to on the night of Lily's murder. The police let him go to sea 
to work on a ship a day or so later and dismissed him as a suspect. Harold Cover later changed his story to say it was Mahmoud Matan he had seen and therefore his reliability as a witness in the original trial was in tatters. In 1998, Harold Kova could have been brought as a witness in the appeal hearing. This could have led to a very awkward situation, as during the build-up to the trial, the Demades, the solicitors acting on behalf of the Matan family, had suggested that they had a suspect in mind for the murder. They never mentioned him by name, but left little doubt they were referring to Harold Kova. After the People newspaper article in 1969, a witness had come forward to say they had seen Howard Cover in the doorway of Lily's shop at 8pm on the night of the murder. She said she had never come forward before because she didn't think it was important as the crime had been solved. Another witness, who was 20 years old, came forward at some point, I'm not sure of the date, but I think it was near the time of the murder and told a Somali community leader he had seen Harold Cover at the shop. It's worth mentioning here, Cover sported a moustache at the time of the murder. Witness Mary Toley had said the man she had seen in the shop had a moustache. As it turned out, no witnesses were needed for the appeal. The Crown admitted defeat on the morning proceeded and started. The Crown Council agreed that the evidence given by Harold Cover was not reliable, and went further, stating that the evidence provided by Mary Gray, who owned the second-hand clothing shop at the original trial, was also highly suspect and could not be relied upon. Mahmoud Matan's name had been cleared after 46 years. Laura wept in court, overwhelmed with emotion. After so many years of pain, within an hour of proceedings beginning, her husband had been proclaimed innocent. As a result of the court's findings, the family were awarded a total of £1.4 million in compensation. Unfortunately, what had happened to their father left indelible scars on David, Omar and Mervyn. All three sons battled with alcoholism and died before they were 60. Laura Matan died of cancer in 2008. She had seen her husband's name cleared, but had suffered so much needless pain and sorrow because of the injustice inflicted upon him. In the late 1990s, South Wales Police did reinvestigate the case, but they were unable to make any headway. All the detectives who had worked the original case had passed, and after all this time, there was little or no evidence to be found. They resigned themselves to the fact they would likely never know who killed Lily Volpert or what had gone so horribly wrong during the original investigation. The courts and police have extended sympathy to the family for the miscarriage of justice, but speaking in the Tribune Times in March 2022, Natasha Gretsch, Mahmoud Matan's granddaughter, says her family have never received a formal apology from South Wales Police. Without this, full closure is not possible for the family, and they still grieve what befell them. On Mahmoud Matan's gravestone, it simply reads, Killed by Injustice. There is one more twist to this story. In his excellent book, 
hanged for the word if. Author Chris Phillips says that in 2004, an anthology of histories about Cardiff by Somali merchant seamen was published. It included the reminiscences of a man named Dahia Awali. He says on the evening Lily Volpert was murdered, he had been in her shop. While he was there, another man had come in, and Lily was noticeably afraid of him. Dahia Awali left the shop and thought no more about it. When he heard about the murder, he was too afraid to come forward with the information, because he himself fit the description of the man police were looking for, and he thought he would be treated as a suspect. Some witnesses countered these claims by saying Awali was in the shop on the 6th of March 1952, but much earlier in the day. It is unknown if Awali's story has any direct connection to Lily's murder. The story of the murder of Lily Volpert and the miscarriage of justice perpetrated on Mahmoud Matan continues to resonate in contemporary UK society, and the tragic tale inspired the 2018 Booker Prize shortlisted novel The Fortune Men by Nadifa Mohammed. Mahmoud Matan's case is also still spoken of within the local Butan community and was thrust back into the media spotlight when a 24-year-old black man, Mohammed Mohammed Hassan, died shortly after being released from custody at Cardiff Bay Police Station in January 2021. The area formerly known as Tiger Bay is now called Cardiff Bay. His family alleges he was beaten while in custody. The Independent Office of Police Conduct is currently investigating. It's sad that when researching this case, I couldn't find a single picture of Lily Volpert. From what I have read, she was a very popular woman who loved and was loved by the community in which she lived and worked. The following story about Lily is perhaps the best way to finish this episode, and it occurred just moments before she lost her life. When Mary and Margaret were in the shop, one of them asked for some matches, but realised they didn't have enough money to buy them. As they were leaving the shop, Lily handed them the matches and said, Times are hard, there's nothing about. I'm sure at the time it seemed insignificant, but that small act of kindness is testimony to the woman Lily was. <laughs>